Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. This is the elections edition where I bring you different candidates from different parties running in this year's federal election here in Canada. My guest today is no candidate. He's a good friend of mine. His name is Carlos Godoy. He is the Senior Vice President of Impact Public Affairs, and I thought it'd be nice to bring on someone who has a very wealthy knowledge of politics in order to discuss what's happening in the elections and what we're foreseeing from now until the end of the campaign. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Carlos Godoy, my friend, how are you? George, it's a pleasure to be back. I'm very happy to be here with you again, uh, alas, virtually, but yeah, eventually, eventually we'll get to, to see each other at some point. I'm guessing I'm hoping, right? Where are you now? You're, you're in Quebec city. Yes. I'm live from old Quebec in Quebec city. Yeah. How, how are things over there? Um, you know, old Quebec has a, an absolute charm that is unbeatable and you can't compete with that. And so I'm well, I, you know, the summer was very pleasant. It was uh, too too warm, some would say, um, but um, good overall. And it's been a busy busy year and busy summer. Um, I didn't really take any vacations. Uh, the The electoral campaign has perhaps derailed um, some of my summer plans. But uh, c'est la vie, and you know, I'll take some time off uh, later in September. That's right. So I'm guessing you're following the elections. It feels, and I want to ask you this because, I mean, we, we, we've, we've worked together. We've, uh, we're, we're passionate about the whole, you know, political thing and elections come around and something happens and our boil, our blood used to boil. Like it was like this thing we used to get pumped about. And for the first time, I think in a very long time, um, had it not been for this podcast where, you know, I'm bringing on the different candidates again and all that, I'm not so sure if I'd be following uh the election as actively as you know the previous ones i don't know if it's just me slowly kind of disconnecting or if it's just you know a lack of interest uh in uh, in having an election maybe this time you know this particular moment so i don't know i mean um i don't know if you feel that at all or if you because of the work you do you have absolutely no choice but to follow the the, the elections george uh, i don't think that you're any different from uh, you know, the average Canadian uh, parent in this country who, you know, has children, has a home, works, um, has a loving uh, partner, um, has spent the summer trying to recover from, you know, the horrible uh, year of COVID that we've had, uh, trying to be as close with family and, you know, having, you know, the right priorities at the right place. So I think that that's the mindset of, of many Canadians. And, you know, even though you are different in the sense that you've been a candidate to an, an election and you've been a policy advisor for many years, um, you know, I mean, uh, Jean Charest used to say that uh, before politics, there's life. And so I think that what you are feeling is a reflection of what Canadians are feeling overall. Yeah. Because for my part, I'm single. I don't have any children. And I'm a professional lobbyist. And so, yeah, if, you know, I wake up and I have 
politics with my cereal in the morning, you know, and, and I have, and I go to bed right after having politics with my last drink at night. And yeah. so that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you have no choice. I mean, you're dipped in it. And at some point, I'm imagining people that are in your profession, you're also thinking of the after, right? I mean, uh, what's going to happen? You need to analyze who's going to, who may be there, who may not be there. Where do we need to direct our focus? Do we need to start working now in preparation of, you know, the 21st of September, like the day after? So I'm sure there's a lot of things uh, going on, like organizationally uh, within like a lobby office. You know, I've perhaps I was a little bit more idealistic and idealist when I was young uh, or younger, but I'm certainly a realist and a pragmatist today. And so as a realist and a pragmatist, you know, I have to adapt to the actual situation as opposed to what I imagine or what my wish from the heart could be. And so what I tell clients is the liberals are, are the government right now. It looks unlikely that they will form the government come September 21st in the morning. And so, you know, while we can't change that course, you know, we, we can certainly adapt and, you know, make the best out of it. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I, I'd like to pick your brain uh, just to see how you see things uh, from your end. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to focus on all the parties. I mean, we know that, you know, the NDP, the Greens, uh, you know, People's Party, the the Quebecois, maybe we, should, we could discuss because, you know, it's quite interesting what's happening in Quebec with them. But primarily, you know, the race between the liberals and the conservatives, which is, you know, the historical kind of... Um, the natural uh, governing parties, yes. Exactly. Uh, but there's so many things that have changed in this campaign, and there's a lot of firsts for me as well. Um, first of all, I, I, I've, I, from the very beginning, I've been looking back, trying to think if throughout my experience I had ever seen a party going to elections with approximately, you know, a 20 point lead, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm trying to think back. Uh, I don't remember ever uh, being involved in an election, whether it's provincial or even, you know, behind the scenes when we used to work uh, with our friends at the federal uh, during the federal elections. I don't ever remember a party leading uh, with 20 points to begin with. So that for me was like, wow, this is this is this is amazing. Right. But then within one week <laughs> of that start, to see that party drop approximately 20 points, that for me is definitely a first. Uh, I don't think I ever imagined that would happen. And so early on in the campaign, right? Well, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of theories and, and schools of thought on this. I'm of the school of thought that Canadians didn't want an election. I'm also of the school of thought that uh, the Liberals hesitated too long to call the election. I think they should have called it six months ago. Um, I think that they would have been in a far better position then than they are now. No one wants to go to an election in the summer. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be the the summer of recovery uh, after the summer of COVID from last year. Uh, everyone imagined that you know it would be uh, you know a, a more of a relaxed um, affair, uh, but you know. Um, Priorities remain priorities, and we know the Liberals have been yearning for, for a majority. I think that they hesitated too long. They wanted to wait to see what would transpire in Nova Scotia. Uh, Nova Scotia was a strong corrective lesson, uh, but 
but by the time the liberals in Nova Scotia were defeated, um, the federal liberals, you know, the, that train had already left the station and it was impossible to, it was impossible to put the toothpaste back into the uh, toothpaste uh, tube. And so um, I think that that was certainly a mistake. And I think that uh, future uh, governments, you know, a, a, across Canada that are thinking of going into an election in the provinces or the territories, or that have elections scheduled sometime next year, such as, such as in Quebec in October of 2022. Um, I think that, you know, this will be a case study on what mistakes not to not to do. And, you know, and, and what are the lessons learned out of, you know, out of hesitation. Hesitation kills. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's what the liberals are, are living by now. Yeah, I agree with you. I, th- I thought the elections, to be honest with you, I thought the elections were going to come this time last year, I was almost sure I was willing to bet that as soon as the conservatives elect the leader, they're dropping the, the you know, they're, they're dropping the hammer. They're going to. It would have been a page out of a Jean Chrétien book when Stockwell Day became leader of the Canadian, uh, the United Alternative Canadian Alliance. Um, and uh, Jean Chrétien pulled the plug on Parliament and then came back with an even bigger majority. So, yeah, I, I thought that also that they wouldn't give uh Aaron O'Toole a chance. What surprises me the most, though, is that as I followed the conservative uh, leadership race, I felt that Aaron O'Toole was the leader that the conservatives needed. Um, I thought that, you know, sometimes I thought that the conservatives didn't deserve a leader of the quality of Aaron O'Toole. And while I've never met him, Mm -hmm. I've listened to him. uh, I've seen him uh, on television, and I think that what a lot of conservatives are uh, ho- holding against him is that you know he's too moderate, yeah. too centrist. Yeah. And the reality is that I think that Erin O'Toole is the average Canadian. He, yeah. uh, a guy born in Montreal, grew up uh, in English Canada, uh, went into the, in the Canadian forces. Um, you know, he's your average, you know, you could have him on just as dads and, you know, yeah. he would be uh, the perfect, you know, the perfect guest on your, on your radio show. And so I think that a lot of Canadians are going to recognize themselves more in Aaron O'Toole than in Justin Trudeau. And while I think that Justin Trudeau was the right man at the right time for the pandemic, uh, I think that Canadians may have a different opinion now for what's going to be the, the next recovery. step for the recovery. Yeah, I agree with you. Even though, even though at the very beginning, I was talking with a lot of uh, friends at the Conservative Party, who during the leadership debate, yeah, they were behind him. They saw exactly what you're describing. But then throughout this year, he kind of dropped. People were thinking, "Did we make a mistake? I'm not so sure he's the right guy." At the same time, let's be honest here. Uh, you know, they're looking at the polls, and Justin is just soaring way above everyone else. They're thinking, "Shit, nothing." You know, the needle hasn't moved a bit maybe we made the wrong choice. So going into this campaign, I, I, I know that speaking to different conservatives, their mindset was, okay, let's just get this over with. We'll get a new leader and then we'll start again fresh uh, for, and, you know, we'll prepare ourselves adequately. Things have turned though now. Uh, I, you know, and it's funny how things change. And that's why I'm, you know, that's why I'm amazed because for this to switch within a week is incredible and there's still a lot of campaigning left to do i mean we have almost three weeks left so uh, you know any, anything could could happen okay you reduce the gap now they took the lead they're about what four or five points ahead 
so now this is the the anything can happen territory. And it's interesting because there's three weeks still left in the campaign. You know, members of the Conservative Party of Canada um, are not Canadians at large. You know, they don't represent the entirety of population, you know, so they're a small, tightly knit family. And I think there was a lot of inside baseball going on about Aaron O'Toole. Did we make the right choice? Is he going to be a chief of transition, a leader of transition? And I think that when you're in a party like the Conservative Party, um, with two previous leaders that were uh, sternly and robustly to the right and to the social right, I think that, of course, you know, um, those members were, were, you know, were probably shocked to see, you know, uh, a, a lay, uh, very socially progressive c- candidate win, win the, the leadership. And, you know, probably asked themselves a lot of questions, you know, did a lot of soul searching, asked, looked to God for some guidance perhaps even. And, um, but again, um, you know, it's a microcosm uh, that is not representative of, you know, Canadian mood or, or Canadians as a whole. And I think that Erin O'Toole, again, like I said, is the best thing that happened to the Conservative Party. The problem is that Conservatives didn't know it until very recently, until yeah. maybe last week. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, and they so, may not, so- and they, and many of them, yeah, you know, in a in a in a potential hypothetical Erin O'Toole government, many of them, you know, may may have voted for him, you know, by pinching their noses, and many of them, you know, uh, will most likely be unhappy if you know he uh, rises in the house to vote against uh, a motion or uh, a bill reopening the debate debate on abortion as if there was ever need to be an opening or any debate on abortion or on same-sex uh, unions um, or other socially progressive measures of that nature uh, which I think you know Canadians are completely past those those conversations you know mm-hmm. it's these are things of the past I think that many of those you know hardcore right-wing social conservatives you know may be unhappy with their conservative uh, leader and, and potential prime minister but c'est la vie it's interesting that you bring this up because I was wondering how is it possible for Justin Trudeau to bounce back? I mean, this isn't a campaign, and I'm going to review myself. This isn't a campaign where they started kind of neck and neck, and now you know there's a slight advantage for O'Toole. I mean, the guy dropped over 20 points. I mean, if you look at that and the 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 the, the drastic period, like in one week, you know, so rapidly. To me, it's an indication of just a loss of momentum. So I'm not so sure if. Um, if the Liberals can bounce back at all. I'm not so sure how much higher Aaron O'Toole can go. I mean, we'll, we'll see in the coming weeks. But I have a feeling, now that you're mentioning all these, um, you know, these sensitive issues that have hurt the Conservative Party over the years, you know, we're talking about abortion and gay rights and all that stuff. Uh, I was reading an article yesterday, I think it was in the National Post, where they, um, someone on the inside, they have some sources on the inside saying that, Justin Trudeau is preparing a full frontal attack on abortion. Get like he's going to bring all that baggage back out uh, because he knows that it may hurt. Like it feels as though this is w- what they need to be doing now th- to hurt the Conservative Party, so that we can kind of gain some ground again. Um, do you think that there's any possibility that they're going to go that route, or they're going to just continue hammering on, you know, the management of COVID nineteen and? Uh, and the post-pandemic uh, strategy. You know, many a government was defeated, you know, uh, 
by only touting their record to the, to the electorate. And so, of course, you know, you need to present fresh new ideas or you have to define your opponent in such a way that it, uh, they're going to be so unpalatable to the public that they won't vote for them. And so mm-hmm. um, tonight on tonight, uh, September 2nd is the first French debate on TVA. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for Justin Trudeau to to gain uh, points tonight, he needs to paint Aaron O'Toole as um, as a wolf in a sheep's clothing who represents a hardcore group of uh, right wing social conservatives, religious zealots that, you know, will re- will while he may vote against himself uh, against abortion, many members of his classes are are, um, are for reopening of the abortion debate. Many members of his caucus don't believe in, in climate change. Many members of his caucus voted against uh, a bill that would ban conversion therapies in Canada for uh, LGBTQI2 folks, uh, such as myself, uh, who, uh, uh, you know, again, who uh, portraying him as a as as a dangerous um, as a dangerous uh, Andrew Shear 2.0, but you know, just slightly, uh, you know, prettier. Uh, the same way how he's going to portray um, Yves Francois Blanchet as an arrogant separatist who uh, at the end of the day will never form a government, will never be part of a government and who uh, by you know neither being uh, the, the government or an, or an alternative to government uh, will only play uh, a swing to what panders to him um, and that hurts and that can hurt national unity. Um, he's going to portray uh, um, uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, as a guy who would spend even more uh, than Justin Trudeau uh, I spent himself, which is to say a lot, um, really a lot. And so, again, so I think it's going to have to be, uh, you know, offense is the best defense. And I think that that's what Justin Trudeau needs to do today, tonight in French. And he needs to make sure that he does it well, calmly, uh, and, uh, and and explains it uh, properly to the Quebec population and other French Canadians that are going to be listening tonight. Um, there was a, on Sunday... Uh, Radio Canada had a panel with all five leaders uh, in front, uh, one one uh, one by one, uh, in front of three senior reporters from Radio Canada, and I think that that was the best format ever. I love it too. Yeah, I, sincerely, there was I had not listened to uh, interviews or to a an, an elections TV show that was so coherent, so clear. Uh, people had an opportunity. Candidates had an opportunity to tell their story. Uh, they had an opportunity also to be to have their feet held to the fire uh, about their record, about their positions, etc. Um, and all of them got hammered on a number of things, all equally. And I think that they all did well. It was it was hard not to do well. You know, Anime Paul unfortunately was the one that you know I think lagged the most behind, not only by virtue of the fact that she wasn't there in person. But also that she can name one of one of her candidates in Quebec, which is uh, quite sad. But again, you know, Anime Paul started off, you know, and uh, with you know lots, you know, lots of holes uh, in in her um, in her boat uh, and and taking water from the get go. So it's not her fault. But everyone else did extremely well during that yeah. that setting, and so that's where I think that Justin Trudeau needs to bring his opponents. He needs to current them in that sort of position. But at the same time, he's going to take a lot of you know, uh, group fire from all three or 
uh, opponents tonight, and it will be very interesting to see wh where that leads us and and who uh, and who comes out uh, on top. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the bit, uh, about the debate. I, I just want to go back to that drop there because, and I and I feel that you know this whole campaign. First of all, it's clear. I mean, he he said it himself when he started the campaign that the central issue behind this campaign will be uh, COVID-19 or is COVID-19. Uh, from the very beginning, they kind of drew their line in the sand and they said, this is where we stand, mandatory vaccinations, um, vaccination passports. Uh, and then, you know, the threat started coming, right? I mean, don't think you can get into a plane or a train unvaccinated. You're not going to, you know, uh, threaten the lives of the, of the, of the vaccinated. So that he positioned himself. I have a feeling that he politicized COVID-19, which I'm not so sure it was the right strategy. And I feel like he's pushing that as the ballot question. Um, do you think that backfired? Is it going to backfire? Um, wh what are your thoughts on that? Because it feels as though that, because that was the only element that was discussed during the first week, and that first week went to hell for them. So um, I, I don't know. And it's I, unfortunate because I think that, you know, Justin Trudeau's government did fairly well man managing COVID. I, I, of course, they spent an astronomical amount of money, but you know what was the alternative? Let people starve in their homes made no sense. And so, between you know a rock and a hard place, I think that they they chose you know the the right direction. Um, that being said, um, there is a great increase of animosity in this country, and you know, and south of the border and everywhere else, uh, as a result of you know you know, confinement, uh, curfews, uh, all sorts of decisions that, you know, at the end of the day, don't, aren't, uh, uh, aren't, weren't made in Ottawa, but were made in, you know, in Queen's Park and were made at the National Assembly and, exactly. um, and, and in every other provincial capital. And so, uh, and, and you know, uh, Doug Ford and Christian Freeland, best buddies uh, during the pandemic, um, you know, uh, a great bonne entente with uh, uh, the prime minister and many of the premiers. And so a lot of the decisions that are, that he's, I think Justin Trudeau is going to be made to pay for during this election were made in, in the provincial capitals. And it's not necessarily 100% his fault. That being said, I think that there's a, uh, a strong level of selfishness and of uh, individualism that, you know, we are seeing in this country that we are not used to seeing. Uh, is it a... Um, is it something that you know we're going to be suffering you know episodically right now uh you know like americans i'm not exactly sure um you know when you were a kid and when i was a kid uh you know some vaccines were required for us to make sure that you know we're healthy and you know we get to live you know healthy lives and you know i mean it, what was it tetanus uh um uh, chicken pox, whatever. Uh, whatever, whatever. And, you know, I mean, they're not mandatory, but they're strongly recommended. And uh, I, I read somewhere recently that uh, if you walk in a cemetery, you'll see a very, very few uh, children's graves uh, nowadays. But back in the days, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the cemeteries of the world were filled with children's graves. Why? Because they died from polio and from chickenpox and all sorts of things that, you know, that we've managed to eradicate almost from, from the face of our country or the face of the planet, thanks to vaccines. I'm not an expert on vaccines, and, you know, and I'm not an expert on international politics or, uh, but, you know, I, while I have an opinion, um, I can't, I can't 
represent being an expert, right? And so I find it very, very fascinating that everyone, you know, all of a sudden becomes an expert on vaccine and microbiology. Yeah. You know, when the average Canadian, you know, has, you know, couldn't, couldn't pass, you know, um, uh, Science Physique uh, 416 that I followed in, in high school. And so, um, so I think that, you know, you know, people are, people are believing way too much stuff from Facebook and, you know, and, and, and our, and, you know, and again, and are letting themselves, let, letting their, their feelings, um, uh, you know, get the best out of them. Yeah, we're all tired of all of this, you know, I'm tired of, of COVID. I, I didn't have it easy, but, I, but, you know, a lot of people had it a hell of a lot harder, but, yeah. but at the end of the day, I want to look forward. You know, I, I want to look the next summer. Um, I, I want to look to, to Christmas. And those are my priorities, you know, my family, my loved ones. I think everyone should, you know, have a little bit more compassion and think about these things. And it's unfortunate that, you know, right now the political discourse is being so, so poisoned by, you know, uh, insults, uh, fingers, uh, images of Justin Trudeau being hung. Uh, that's completely unacceptable in this country. You know, you have yeah. a different political opinion. That's fine. You know, I, I encourage you to have a different political opinion because, you know, mine might be er erroneous, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend uh, or I'm not, not going to suggest that I'm going to hang you for yours. You know, that's where I think that we need to draw the line. And I don't know where all this, I don't know where all this animosity uh, and all of this hate is coming from. Sincerely, I, I sincerely do not, do not. Yeah, you're it. right. You're right. There's a lot of, uh, there's, a, the, you know, there's a lot of vulgarity out, uh, out there, right? Uh, uh, I've, I've never seen it. And I mean, we've seen, you know, we've tough seen crowds. a lot of stuff. And, we've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? But it's always within the spectrum of, you know, whatever ideology people believe in to what you're saying. Right. I mean, OK, you don't you don't support me. You're coming and you're yelling at me and it's fine. I mean, we've heard the insults, but this is at another level. I mean, I've never heard people swearing loudly, just comfortably as if it's if it's no big deal in front of children at, yeah. at protests, putting themselves and putting children in harm's way. Like, well, what is going on? Sincerely, like you're unhappy, uh, you know, you are say it express it vote against it mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. threatening to kill people come on sincerely yeah. Yeah. no um you know the other thing that um the other thing that i i i fear has played into uh you know this whole thing i mean we're we're, we're what in the second week now third week um in addition to you know the, the people coming out uh in certain cases aggressively against uh, this campaign and Justin Trudeau, which obviously has reflected in the numbers, specifically here in Quebec, we're also seeing a lot of the politicians provincially uh, voicing a lot of their concerns because a lot of the pro uh, a lot of the electoral promises that Justin Trudeau is making are sort of well, mostly provincial jurisdiction matters of provincial jurisdiction. So, uh, and you know, last week we had, uh, well, Premier Legault from the very beginning, he's been saying it. And then you had Dominique Anglade and a lot of the, the politicians and the, you know, the political leaders here in Quebec are coming out saying, look, why is Justin Trudeau making promises that are clearly overstepping his jurisdiction? Um, you know, it's, it's never clear if whether or not he'll be able to, to do these promises, to deliver them. Clearly he can't because it's not, you know, it's not matters of federal jurisdiction. Like, how are you going to hire thousands of doctors or, you know, medical professionals in the senior long, in, in the long-term care facilities? Um, you know, how Where are you going to find them? Let's start with that. Where are you going to find them? 
forget about finding them, but, but like how, like how, like logistically, <clears throat> how are you going to do it when you have zero input in this? So, but the liberals have always believed in the federal power of spending, le pouvoir fédéral de dépenser, mm-hmm. and you know, I think that that's something that's strongly ingrained in in the in their uh, in their DNA. And, uh, uh, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? I'm not sure. Um, you know, if I was prime minister, would I want to spend money where I think that, you know, where my priorities are and where electors have elected me to have priorities? The answer is probably yes. Um, the, you know, federalism, though, is is an odd beast, uh, especially the, our Canadian brand of federalism. And we have to, uh, you know, we, we have to see provinces as, as partners. Um, and, you know, where there's, you know, where there's a will, there's a way as well. And so if, if the federals if the federal government made available money to, for a specific initiative and gave it to the provinces and let the provinces roll roll it out and i think that's federalism of, of cooperation mm-hmm. we all understand that you know ottawa is where all of the money is and you know the pandemic has demonstrated it when justin trudeau tells us all the time that the reason that you know uh, uh, uh queues and serve and all these programs were invented was that the federal government can borrow money at an infinitely smaller percentage than provinces or Canadians themselves. And so they didn't hesitate to spend uh, that money uh, and to make it available. Uh, And so that's the reality. The reality is that Ottawa does have a lot of money or has the capacity to borrow a lot of money. And and when it comes to spending money, provinces aren't wrong in saying that, you know, Ottawa has not been shouldering its fair share of, uh, of, of the health cost in this country. Healthcare delivery, while being a provincial, an exclusive provincial jurisdiction, is extremely, extremely costly. Mm-hmm. And in a population, uh, in a demographic context where the population is aging very, very rapidly, and that, you know, we are not, uh, and, 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 they're, and the elderly are living longer. And so the, 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 the cost to our health system is, is far, far greater now than it was 50 years ago. Ottawa absolutely has to step up to the plate. And, you know, we can't deny that everybody in Ottawa knows that this is the case. Why have they not been able, between the, the federal government, the provinces, been able to come up with a an agreement on this? I don't know. Is it something that, you know, again, sometimes governments and parties will save announcements uh, for an electoral campaign? You know, don't give up, you know, everything from the get-go. Keep some for... For the campaign which is a strategy and it's a tactic but at the same time i think that that's where the real conversation should be happening you know provinces and canadians need more money to be invested in the healthcare system we need you know parity for physical health and for mental health at the same time uh, now we are seeing today now that you know everyone has a mental health uh, the same as everyone has a physical health and, and taking care and, and nursing and, and making sure that both are on the up and up is equally important. If Canadians are going to be happy, are going to be prosperous, are going to be co- contributing to the economy and contributing to the well-being of others as well. So that's where I think that the real debate should, should be happening. Uh, you know, the environment, of course, is another real debate. But, you know, Canada, while, you know, the second largest country in the world you know we are not a huge population and you know i'm often concerned by you know how much impact will our decisions on on sustainable development and and the environment and reduction of greenhouse gases what impact will that have really 
on the world and on the planet. You know, when we are sitting next to giants such as the United States, such as Russia, such as China, such as India, who have millions and millions, not billions of more of citizens than we do, and, you know, and don't have their greenhouse gas emissions under control. You know, so what will our individual and collective efforts here in Canada with our small population, what, you know, will, what impact will we really have uh, on the, the, on the health of, of our planet? I'm not hundred percent sure. Now, of course, you know, you know, when we were kids, we were thought that, you know, you know, with recycling, you know, chaque geste compte, you know, every little piece of paper or cardboard that you recycle, a glass of plastic or tin that you recycle, you know, everything helps. And it does, you know, we shouldn't walk away from that mentality. But when facing, you know, other international major players on the planet, I'm not sure what the actual impact is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. that's certainly something that we should be, that, that we should be looking at, you know, should we be, you know, putting a halt to economic development and wealth creation and prosperity in the solely on, on, on the sake uh, of, of uh, the future of the planet when, you know, we have limited impact. I don't know. I'm asking myself these questions. You know, I'm for transportation electrification. You know, I, I, I would love to have a train à grande vitesse between Quebec City and Toronto. I'd like to be able to say, hey, let's go and have dinner in Toronto and be there in, in two and a half hours by train. I would love it. I'd, I'd do it. Um, uh, you know, I, I want my next car, I want it to be electric. Uh, I want to be able to take the road in an electric car and, and, and not have to worry, you know, am I going to run out of battery? Am I going to find a, a quick charging station? for my trip up north or in the countryside or or to, or to or to Montreal but these are all questions that you know right now we haven't really seen uh, in the campaign if anything uh, the only person that has spoken a bit about the environment is Yves-François Blanchet with his support to the third link between Quebec City and Navy and uh, sincerely I, I, I we could hear you know the eight members uh, uh, the eight Parti Québécois members of the National Assembly, you know, falling off their chair because they took a clear position against <clears throat> the Troisième Lien. And then Yves-François Blanchet, you know, just went into the campaign saying that he would he would support it. Um, allegedly, that, you know, that there's a way to do to do this environmentally friendly. And so, um, so not everything is is going well in the in the sovereignist camp. Uh, and will that be? Uh, and will that uh, benefit conservatives? Um, down the line, I strongly think so. Right now, I'm looking at three constituencies in Quebec that are currently held by the Bloc Québécois that will most likely switch to the Conservatives. And so, um, again, you know, we were saying last uh, last time we spoke about federal elections in 2019, we were saying that you know Conservatives and Bloc Québécois in Quebec have a communion of spirit on of sorts on certain things. This is where we'll see that that Quebecers uh, are nationalists. But they're also a little bit conservative as well. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting that you're mentioning this because uh, on that on that episode the, uh, last weekend with uh, you know the one on one with the press, they asked the Francois Blanchet about sovereignty, and they're like, "You don't mention it once in your entire platform." And I found that his answer was very interesting. He's like, "Listen, we're here to represent Quebec's interest, and if right now there isn't that interest in Quebec, why would I be advocating for sovereignty? I mean, everyone knows that this is." a reason for existing but i think we need to be uh realistic as well i mean the, we don't have that sentiment coming from quebec so and and i think it was a great answer um so he doesn't really care about what the parti quebecois believes uh and he's really playing into his cards of i'm here to represent quebec interest as a whole regardless of you know what 
the Parti Québécois, uh, elected officials think in Quebec, or, you know, uh, I, I need to go with the train of thought of Quebec. And uh, he did a great job last election. But I'm thinking mostly now about Aaron O'Toole, uh, where, you know, he was, he, again, in, in that same, um, in that episode, uh, in that um, uh, that one-on-one, he was very careful about the answers he was given. It almost felt like it was rehearsed, um, just kept repeating his lines. Uh, and you, you can see it like it shows, I mean, to the, to, you know, to the people that understand uh, politics or that have been involved. And he's being very careful, like he's on a tightrope and he can't afford to make any wrong statements. The problem is, though, that there's still three weeks left in the campaign. So I'm just wondering are you going to be able to maintain this kind of careful discourse throughout the entire campaign? Are you going to crack? Are they going to push you on one side or the other? Uh, and I'm not so sure because we don't know him that well as a leader. He's still relatively new, right? And I think so far, like we've mentioned, he's done a good job, but now it's crunch time. And, you know, we're not even close to the finish line. And you see him already kind of holding back, just, okay, let me just give my answers. And then, you know, the, the, the journalist kept coming back. Yeah, but you didn't answer. Okay. And he kept saying again, his, so he's being very, very, very careful. You're right. Look, two dangers for Aaron O'Toole, peaking too early. And the greatest danger is when you're nearing the finish line. And so I think that notionally Aaron O'Toole is, you know, is at his, in the best position that he could hope for right now. And if the election were on Monday, I think that, you know, uh, he would make some serious gains. And right now, if you look at, you know, yesterday's polling aggregate 338, uh, Canada 338.ca, which looks at numerous polls and then does an, uh, an important calculation. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that the conservatives are, are ahead, but they're still not uh, clear of the 170 seats to form a majority. Um I think that, you know, if they could keep this course, uh, again, this course of, you know, being very careful to what you say, not not over committing, not over stretching. And if he does well in today's debate, I think, you know, things will bode well for, for him. You'll remember that in 2019, there was the French debate, the first French debate that really sunk Andrew Scheer and that positioned Yves-François Blanchet as a serious alternative in Quebec. Yves-François Blanchet, you'll remember, remember, you know, Yves-François Blanchet, uh, I still believe, should, should be canonized by the sovereignist movement because, you know, he brought the sovereignists back from the dead, you know, Lazarus. He, he you know, revived the party like no one imagined. Exactly. Uh, possible. And, and, it, and it was impossible, and only Yves-François Blanchet could do it. You know, his charisma, his superior intellect, uh, both sometimes translating into a bit of an arrogance, uh, is what the, the sovereignists and, and strong nationalists needed last time around. Now, I think that he's more in the mode of, you know, we need to keep our gains, you know, and we don't, we, we can't lose any more seats. I don't think that, you know, there's anything that they can gain. I don't see a constituency in this province where Yves-François Blanchet can, can make, uh, uh, can turn the tides to, to gain it from the liberals or the conservatives. But I think that, you know, there's three constituencies that he may lose. Beauport, Côte de Beaupré, Ile d'Orléans, La Malbaie, um, here in Charlevoix, uh, Charlevoix, I mean, I think that that most likely the, conser- the, the conservatives are going to win. Uh, okay. Beauport, Limoilou, Alupa Clark, uh, back from uh, his defeat in 2019, I think that he could likely win. 
and the other one is Trois-Rivières, where there's no where it is a Bloc Québécois seat, but there's no incumbent in this election. And the, the former mayor of Trois-Rivières, who's a well-known personality, I think, you know, given the fact that national polls are looking good for the Conservatives, if the election were to happen today, I think that, you know, those three seats would, would go to the Conservatives. Will that mean that the, the Bloc Québécois will remain uh, obsolete or, or useless? Far far from it. You know, the, the, the Bloc Québécois is uh, a, a clear uh, and... Um, a clear and present obstacle for anyone gaining a majority in in this very very tight election. Um, and again, uh, and I think we're most likely looking at a at a, some sort of a minority government uh, setting and set of circumstances come uh, September twenty first in the morning. Which is why, which is um, which is the strategy that the the Bloc Québécois is really hoping for because. Um, and and if François Blanchet doesn't shy away from saying it, right? He goes, "I don't care who gets elected. I'm there to hold the balance of power," and I think that's very important because uh, when you need to pass legislation, and the only party that you need that you have to negotiate with is the bloc, there's a lot of power in their hands. And I think, like, no, you know, nobody nobody's dreaming in technicolor. We all know that they'll never form a government. They know it, but they also they're also very much aware that our mission isn't to form a government. Our mission is to hold the majority of the seats in Quebec and play that in our favor. And I think he's doing a great job. You know, as, uh, is a minority government a bad thing? I don't think it is. I think for that, the Bloc Québécois, for the Bloc Québécois, definitely not. I mean, that's what they want. For the NDP um, either. For the NDP either. Yeah. Um, the, you know, for for too long we've had strong majorities in this country, which has centralized power in the hands of the prime minister. And it's not a bad thing. The prime minister, the prime minister's office, uh, and and the cabinet, and leaving uh, members of parliament, the you know the proverbial backbenchers as uh, talented individuals whose contributions aren't really put to, uh, you know, whose contributions aren't really sufficiently valued because mm -hmm. they have to do what the prime minister's office and the leader of the house and the whip tells them to do. In a minority government, it puts a lot of balance of power in opposition parties uh, and in individual uh, members of parliament to shine, to, to push uh, ideas and priorities, to represent their constituents and, you know, larger constituencies such as what the NDP has been successfully doing during the pandemic, you know, by giving the Liberals the, the necessary votes to adopt a budget, to adopt a speech from the throne, et cetera. Um, the Conservatives have also, you know, played well their role. Uh, and, uh, and as a lobbyist that does some federal lobby, but that does mostly some provincial lobby, I've seen many of my clients successfully have measures adopted that they've been pushing, not necessarily only to the government, but to opposition MPs that sit on important committees. And, and these opposition MPs of all three major parties, I've been very, very keen at, you know, trying to influence government decisions. And I think that a minority government is, is positive for democracy, is positive to, you know, uh, revalue the role of individual members of parliament, of parliamentarians, and of backbench MPs, uh, in letting them do the job that they're elected to do, to legislate. Right. Uh, let's uh, let's wrap it up, man. Uh, we're, we're talking about the debate tonight, September 2nd. Um, who do you think is going to shine? Obviously, this is just speculation, right? We don't know. Um, who do you think is going to come out on top uh, based on what we've seen so far? Um, that is a really good question. I think, you know, my personal feeling is that Erin O'Toole is going in there with 
the most to gain. I think that Justin Trudeau needs to be accessible, appear accessible, reasonable, uh, and uh, not disconnected from the average Canadian. I think that Yves-François Blanchet needs to demonstrate that a strong Quebec presence in his Bloc Québécois caucus is going to be to the greater benefit of, of Quebecers. And uh, I think that um, Jagmeet Singh has nothing to gain uh, and nothing to lose, really. There's only one seat, uh, one uh, NDP seat in French Canada. And well, you have I, Ruth Ellen Brosona that's back in the picture, and uh, it looks kind of favorable for her over there. I, I'm not sure that that's, you know, um, I, I'm not sure that, you know, it's a, it's a win for her yet. Uh, my ears to the ground tells me that, tell me that she's very, very appreciated. Uh, it, it was uh, a lot of people were disappointed that, you know, she did not win last time around. But um, I don't know. I think that, you know, it's too early in the game to tell if she'll have a real impact. I'm not sure that, you know, it'll be, uh, uh, I'm not sure the national campaign at the NDP will have an influence in uh, Bertie Masquinonger. I think that, you know, it's the Ruthalyn Brosseau factor. It's going to be as many, she's going to have to knock on as many doors as possible and shake as many hands as possible as well. And so I think it's still too early to tell. Uh, but, you know, I know that, you know, a lot of people are appreciate her in, in yeah. Bertie Masquinonger. And a lot of people wish to see her back in, in the House Commons. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what, what happens, what comes out of this debate, man. Um, again, uh, the, the the dynamics have shifted so much. Uh, I'm I'm I was left speechless uh, a week ago. I was like, what is going on? Um, and it's interesting, like we said, because it's still very early on in the in the election, and there's so much room to play now. Um, it seems as though with the drop of the liberals. Well, not every party, but at least you know the liberals, the conservatives, and the bloc. This, and specifically in Quebec, we're talking about they seem to kind of be now on an equal playing field. And you know everything, everything can happen for each one of those three uh, parties. But even the even the NDP, I'm, I'm I don't know how uh, how much ground they can potentially go get in Quebec. But I'm reading that in Ontario, they 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 seem to be doing well. Yeah, British uh, Columbia, Ontario. I think that they're pulling pretty well. I think that a lot of the uh, social democracy uh, and compassion um, um, sort of discourse from Jack Meet Singh is, is getting some traction. You know, we're in, in our system where it's the one that gets the most votes will, 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 will get, you know, pass the post, no wins. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the, the NDP and the Liberals are going to be both lumped together and they're going to be splitting that, uh, that same pool of, of uh, critical pool of electors. Uh, leaving in some cases, you know, uh, an open way for conservatives to, to squeeze themselves in, or uh, in some cases in Quebec, uh, letting the bloc squeeze themselves in as well. And so, sincerely, I think that anything can happen at this point. But if you look at, you know, the, the voter intentions and you know, the likeliness of, you know, liberals forming the next government, you know, those numbers are fairly eloquent. It, it, mm -hmm. We're seeing that, you know, liberals have less of a chance now of forming the government than the conservatives do. Uh, does that mean that, you know, it's a done deal? Absolutely not. Let's see what tonight brings. 
uh, let's see what the English debate brings. And of course, you know, it, it's very interesting that, you know, there's more debates in French than there are in English. And so mm-hmm. what, what does that say about English Canadians? What does that say about, about French Canadians? I think that, you know, debate is important. Debate is, is, is crucial for our democracy. The format of debate that we're used to is cacophonic, is, you know, is disruptive. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, it's a screaming match sometimes. And I don't think that, you know, democracy is well served by that. But the interviews that RDI on Radio Canada gave with the leaders with, you know, difficult questions to answer by by senior seasoned reporters. In fact, I think that's absolutely the best format that we can hope yeah, for. And I, I hope that that's something that's going to move forward in the future. And I, and I wish CBC News World would do the same thing as well, because Canadians deserve to have answers to their questions, you know, we're not. This is not question period in, in the in, in the House of Commons where opposition asks questions and then governments, the government, you know, dodges them. Canadians want answers to their questions. They want to know what's gonna, what's the plan for the future for the next two years if it's a minority government or in the next four years if it's a majority. And I think that we're at an important moment in our history where you know we're dealing with a a, a world pandemic that's. We, we we hoped it would be on the tail end now. Uh, there's there's been the Afghan crises, uh, you know, there forest fires, floods, uh, natural disasters, uh, energy questions that need to be answers answered. And you know, then there's no right answer to you know what's the best way to transport Canadian um, energy products, you know, um, and and what what are the sources of those energy products as well? Those are serious questions that I think that Canadians want to ask uh, want to have uh, asked. And want to have answered and also canadians want to make sure that you know they themselves and their neighbors you know will have jobs and their children's will have jobs that are uh, well remunerated with good conditions um, and and there's a and there's a shortage of of skilled uh workforce right now uh, in the country across all uh, areas of business and so those are in my opinion the real questions that need to be answered i hope we'll get some answers tonight and during the next three weeks of the campaign Dude, thank you so much for coming on, man. I know that you're busy and uh, for taking this time uh, just to come on and give your uh, your knowledge and uh, your sage advice on uh, certain issues uh, means a lot. I do appreciate it, man. It was a pleasure speaking to you, George, as always. I look forward to uh, speaking to you again and um, the best of the family and to your listeners. Thank you so much, buddy. You. See you soon.